0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.
2: We talk about food.
1: Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Darren Bresnitz. We are so excited to sit down with Chow Now's CEO and co-founder, Chris Webb. We talk about his lifelong appreciation for food, the start of his company, and where he sees the independent restaurant community heading and how Chow Now continues to support them. Then we head back to the Brooklyn Archives for a classic performance from Loose Buttons, a troupe of native New Yorkers, and they were on there to promote their new single that came out in 2016, one of our favorite performances and something we're super excited to share with you on this Sunday or whenever you're listening. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy Snacky Tunes here on Heritage Radio Network. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule. Sit down, chat with the Snacky Tunes. Welcome to the show.
3: Cool. Thanks for having me on.
1: Of course. um, You know, I was reading about your upbringing in the Toothache magazine, the, the latest issue, Issue 10. And you had mentioned that your mom's side of the family is European. And I have a similar background where my family comes from Europe. And I think I took it for granted growing up about the appreciation of art and culture and food of not being, not to disparage American upbringing, but when I finally got to Europe in like my twenties, I was like, oh, this, this tracks so much about what I appreciate in life, especially when it comes to food. Um, How much did that shape you, that European approach to understanding gastronomy? Um, And how different was it from maybe some of like the, like the American, American kids you grew up with?
3: Yeah, um, I think I was very lucky, and it it really was a luxury. Um, I I grew up in a middle class family here in L.A. Um, as you said, my mom is European. She's from London, British. Her parents were from Germany. They left Germany to escape the Nazis and and ended up in London. And so half my family is in and around London. And then my dad was from Texas, and and uh, his his family at the time was was all from da- kind of around Dallas. But to your question, I mean, I, I remember being on a train in Switzerland with my parents when I was probably, or at least my mom and my sister when I was probably six and having like going into the food cart and having these like a most amazing mushrooms. And I, I remember all the, you know, many, many yeah. years, I'm 41 now. So that was, you know, call it 35 years later. Sure. And it was, it was the first time I actually enjoyed having a mushroom. Um, and, and you know, that that type of kind of the fact that I remember it, 35 or 36 years later right. clearly had an influence on my life. And I hated mushrooms up to that. I think most kids probably dislike mushrooms. I know a lot of adults that dislike mushrooms. I think like, it's I was the white train.
1: button mushroom. If I remember <laughs> yeah. from my youth, it's like yeah. those rubbery raw ones that
3: sat on top of a salad. Totally. And, and so this is on a train. It's not even like a fine dining yeah. restaurant. This <laughs> yeah. is on a train in Europe. And it just talks about like how, the, the, how much different it is. And, and again, middle class family. It wasn't like we're of traveling course. like class yeah. through like some, you know, uh, yeah, amazing kind of private type coach type thing. And this is kind of everyday eating on the train in Europe. And and I just remember the mushrooms being so fantastic as a kid, um, and, and being so different than anything I had here in LA growing up. So, so clearly it had some influence on me and I think quite a bit. And then, um, another influence, I, I think I talk about it in that, that, uh, toothache article that you're, you're referencing. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very lucky that a a very good friend of mine in elementary school, his dad was a very well-known, famous chef, James Mm -hmm. Beard Mm -hmm. chef, and they lived two blocks from my house. and And I'd just go over there and kind of hang out as a kid, as kids do. Dad would be in the kitchen cooking everyone food. And again, it was like very elevated. It wasn't your average kind of going down the block to your friend's house. No, 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 no. It was that kind of exposure. um, And and I think a lot about that. And and I'm. I have fell out of touch with my friend and I'm back in touch with him. We were actually texting yesterday and it's kind of oh, nice. it's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing how much kind of your, your childhood influences the rest of your life. I mean, I had a friend who
1: I grew up with wound up becoming a professional chef in Chicago, now in San Francisco. And I even remember in middle school, we'd be baking at one of our houses and he'd be like, oh, scraping a vanilla bean pod. And I was like, okay. okay. I, I was like, I'd never seen that before. And then you see, them go into food or still be related to food years later. Um, and I think it's probably more common now, but since you and I are the same age, this idea of food being any sort of through line or narrative, especially coming from that sort of background, wasn't the norm. Um, how much did you keep coming back to food? Because I know you went to Wall Street. I know you did like the business sort of finance track. Was food always in your mind? Was it always playing in the back? Were you the guy who was like, all right, we're, cl- we're, Wall Street's closed. We're punching out. Chris, where are we eating?
3: Yeah, yeah it, it fell off. I think a lot of my interests fell off in high school and changed in high school. And then I kind of came back to it. That that thing includes like sports growing up as a kid. Like I, I love basketball, played a fair amount of it, went to high school. And like in high school, you just start to kind of gravitate to other things. And, and I did. And then kind of in my 20s, I came back to, to a number of things, including watching basketball again and starting to play again, but also food. The other influence was living in New York. So I've, I've kind of lived in two cities of my life, LA, which is the vast majority of it, and then New York for about six years. And living in New York, I think you have to love food and restaurants and come kind of the restaurant scene because because you, know, you got to get out of your shoebox apartment and there's only so many places to go and you can only spend so much time at Central Park. So you end up spending a lot of time in restaurants and spending a fair amount of money in restaurants. And if you don't like them, uh, you're not going to like living in New York very much. And so that that took this kind of, love of of restaurants as a kid or love of food at least uh, and kind of brought it back into my life and then kind of grew from there from call it my early twenties through my late twenties.
1: I mean, we were both in New York in our twenties during that time. And that was a very special time in the food scene in New York. Now I was um, a PA and bartending on the weekends. I was not working in wall street. So you probably had a little bit more um, liquidity to go out to eat, uh, where were you dining at that time? What was speaking to you? What do you remember from that scene?
3: Yeah, uh, so so yes. However, you probably had more hookups and connections than I did in, in the restaurant, you know, <laughs> in the worlds there in New York. So so you know, I'm sure you lived large and enjoyed you know enjoyed some really great things. Um, a, a,
1: a lot of dumplings, a lot of a lot of like yeah, five <laughs> dumplings for a dollar. I'll tell you that most yeah. during that time.
3: I mean, that is a great thing about New York is that you, you know, you can go and spend a, just a boatload of money, but you can eat some amazing kind of street food and things for under 10 or 15 bucks as well. Um, so, you know, the, 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 place that I loved and I just kind of, I forgot why I went there in the first place. Someone had told me about it, but blue ribbon Brasserie can the original mm-hmm. Blue Ribbon and Sullivan and Soho, not the sushi joint, but the, the real kind of original Brasserie, which is still there. Um, and it was open still is probably open till four in the morning and you can go. And so when you're in twenties, you're, you stay out pretty late. You kind of bounce around and, and probably drink a little too much and, and indulge. And for years I would end up at blue ribbon. It was kind of my go-to and it's like, I felt I was probably 26 or 27 at the time and mm-hmm. felt so large, just eating like steak tartare and oysters and paella and all this Ooh, stuff at three in the morning after being, so at the bar. Good. it was, it was amazing. And, and like, and so I remember eating like the paella was fantastic. I, you know, you eat order way too much. I was probably consuming like 3000 calories at that dinner. It's just not healthy at all. it's things. You yeah. But when order. you're 26, it's yeah. fine, it's yeah. fine. So, it's a little different yeah.
1: now when you when, when we're dads uh, over 40. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: Yeah. So, and, and so, and then I, you know, box up the paella, bring it home, pass out and then wake up, you know, late morning and, and finish it off as like a kind of a brunch uh, at my house, my, in my living room uh, or on the couch. Um, But Blue Ribbon was a place that like over time I I probably spent more money at and more time at. And again, usually it was at like from 2 a.m. to to 3.30 a.m. It was kind of my go-to there. (laughs) Uh, But it was such a fun scene and and crowd and the food was so, so awesome. A lot of chefs there too. I mean that was –
1: and I don't know if it still is. But like that place was the haunt for a lot of chefs who got off their own shifts and wanted a great place to eat late at night.
3: Yeah, it was a great collection of, of of a whole bunch of different kind of scenes coming together. At the, you know, again at two or three in the morning, um, and, and yeah, definitely kind of chef and, and restaurant folks were there. And then you'd get you know people like me coming off from from bars down the block that were hungry again. And you know, we had dinner at probably nine nine p.m. and then yeah. six hours later we're back eating again. Um, there, and I live kind of nearby in West Village area. I've lived a block away from Joe's Pizza, so consumed a lot of Joe's Pizza as well. Shout out. You and me both. Yeah. Yeah. So that was great. Um, Still is. Uh, Blue Ribbon, unfortunately, the last time I went there, it wasn't the same. And maybe there's a little bit of nostalgia in my mind that kind of had fallen off. But, uh, you know, it's been a while. For, For me, it's been 15 years from kind of the time I was just describing. And things change. Uh, there was also Blue Ribbon kind of owned this like little block within the West Village. They had the, the mm-hmm. bakery, which was yep. awesome, which is no longer there. They had wine bar, which I think is there. And then they had this tiny little market that was probably about mm-hmm. 250 square feet. My friend Sasha worked there. I, I met him because he, he was the GM of it, ran it. Um, and he was definitely into food and he he educated me on a lot of stuff. And I'd go and have all these amazing kind of open-faced toasts that he'd prepare in this tiny little market, sit around and felt like I was probably like an 85-year-old Italian man, you know, just hanging out, loitering in, in this place. And, you know, I was in my 20s. And you just sit there, drink a cup of coffee, kind of shoot the shit for a while and and eat some good food. Um, and Sasha's, you know, he, he's actually uh, part of the team here at Channel these days, which is kind of cool how things come full circle. I mean, but, uh, that, those connections yeah.
1: with food. I mean, when did you start – was that your introduction into developing relationships and restaurants and chefs or understanding – how the restaurant world works or was there uh, another time in your life when you started thinking about getting involved deep, deeper in the culinary scene other than just uh, a, a guest?
3: Yeah. So, so, so kind of two things happened roughly within the same year while I was living in New York. One on, on a random whim, my mom invested in tender greens when they had one location that was open for a week in Culver city. and, and Again, not something that we have ever done before. It was just kind of a spur of the moment. She liked the three founders, got to know them just as a, a customer of the restaurant and started chatting. She's very extroverted and, and chats with anyone that will chat with her and and chatted with them and, and eventually called me up and said that she wanted to invest. And I said it was a bad idea, but she did it anyway. And, and it paid off. It was a good call. So I'm glad she followed through and ignored my advice back then. So So that... Got me paying a little bit more attention to the restaurant scene or business business side of the, of the restaurants. I also um, had become friends with um, the woman that runs an amazing group of restaurants in New York called Caracas. Um, Ooh, they rape a and place, they, yeah. And, and I think that I think it's so amazing. And, and mm-hmm. at the time, they had the East Village location, which is the original, which is unfortunately no longer there. I don't think it made it through through the pandemic. Uh, but she had opened the, the location in Williamsburg and mm-hmm. then went out in, um, um, keep Rockaway. Rockaway? Island. yeah, Rockaway is, is what yep. I'm trying to think of. Yeah. And her and I had become friends. And I said, like, this will kill it in LA. Like this, like this concept, what you do, the price point, the flavors, like, and there's not a whole lot like it in LA. There's very Ooh. little, like, it. there's obviously a lot of Mexican food and kind of other, other food Uh, But I think anyone that probably likes Mexican food would love food and and speak to to a bunch of other people. So I think there's a huge audience for it here in L.A. And so I was working with her and her husband at the time about trying to get them out to L.A. and open locations. And, you know, we we were even made trips out to L.A. And I at that point was kind of moving back to L.A. We looked at locations. We looked at locations on Rose Ave. Again, this is probably like 2008, 2009. Uh, it didn't come to be um, her and her, her husband at the time separated. They're still business partners, but they said, well, it's probably not a great idea to, to open new locations 3,000 miles away while we're going through this. <laughs> and so that never yeah. came to be, but I, I, I spent some time with them. Uh, we're still friends, but spent time with them. Um, and then
1: is this also when you started to understand the difference between I don't, I mean, I guess I'll call it corporate, like larger restaurants and independent restaurants and what comes with being an independent restaurant, especially in this modern economy.
3: Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it's also what I prefer to eat. In mm-hmm. my credit card statement, you'll see it, you know, <laughs> I spend on, yeah, it. It rarely is that as a chain, um, you know, an occasional in and out burger or something like that. But for the most part, I, I've always loved independent restaurants. and um, And I think that was kind of, the influence of my, my parents who kind of avoided fast food and chains like that you know we got a happy meal on our birthday and that was the only sure, sure, McDonald's sure. in our life as a kid um and also the back to the european influence i think a little bit something like 60 or 70 percent of restaurants in the u.s are independently owned and kind of mom mm-hmm. and pop independence and, and the rest are larger groups the mcdonald's starbucks type in europe it's it's even more skewed it's 80 percent of restaurants are independent mm-hmm. so, so you know, just spending more time there as a kid during the summers and get, getting exposed to that. So, I mean, it's been deep in, in kind of my DNA, I think, and and so, you know, I I like so many other people, and probably so many people that that you know and you know potentially listen to this, love independence restaurants and just the the creativity that comes from it. I think. Oh yeah. I, I, for the argument that. That franchisees are local business owners as well. And and while technically they name it true, I think what gets lacked is is the the creativity of starting a, your own restaurant and mm-hmm. you know not be giving the ingredients and menu and everything else, but it is creating the Everything from the ambiance to the menu to everything else that goes into the experience of an independent restaurant that makes it so so great. So I've I've, I've gravitated to calling referring to them as independent restaurants or local restaurants these days, just because yeah I think it's the independence that I am attracted to and, and really love. Amazing. Well, listen, let's take a quick musical break and we come back. I
1: wanted to talk about the uh, the turn and the start of Chow Now and about what you are doing to work with independent restaurants. We have a song from the archives here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network. back to snacky tunes we're here with chris webb and right before the break you were talking about your love for independent restaurants and it's one thing to love and 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 want to invest in a restaurant it's quite another thing to build a business around them that supports them when did you start thinking about the initial idea of how you would work or what you could bring to working with independent restaurants, given your background and experience?
3: Yeah, I, I had always wanted to start my own business at some point. So I was always kind of toying with ideas. What could I do? This goes back to kind of like high school days of just mm. kicking around ideas and never really getting anything off the ground, but always wanting to to really do something of my own. And I, I didn't go that path in my early 20s. I, I ended up going and, and working at investment banks, trading stocks. Um, and kind of fell into it. I didn't go to college. I kind of, it, it, one of these things where like the internship turns into a full-time job and all of a sudden I'm living in New York and, and, and it was great. I love it. I'm, I'm very, very happy. I got, I got lucky that way. Um, but I had always thought, okay, at some point I'm going to start my own business. So I was always looking at ideas and, and toying with ideas. I love tech. Again, that was partly kind of growing up in the 90s, the age of AOL and the internet mm, coming to be and mm-hmm, around that. You know, mm-hmm. that. And, and so getting that in my yeah, you know, I think I was in middle school when that stuff started to kind of come to be in life, and, and so got that. Um, when I started to talking to restaurant owners like Mary uh like the team at Tender Greens, um, one of the founders' name is David. I, I spent time talking to him on the subject. It was clear that that restu- independent restaurants didn't have an option to take their business online in an effective way. And, and mm. we're talking about t- time frame to, to give you some references, like 2010 yeah. went into yeah. 2011. Mm-hmm. Right, And so at that point, if, if you go back, the, the iPhone came out in 2008, the App Store wasn't originally open. It was only Apple Apps for a little bit. About a year and a half later, sure. uh, Apple opened up the App Store to outside developers. And, and so some of the first apps to go in there were from the big chains. So Domino's was very quick to, to build an app yeah. that allowed you to order food. Starbucks was kind of shortly after them. And, and you had all these big chains kind of rushing into building their own apps, submitting it, and they saw a ton of success. And, and Domino's was very vocal um, on their you know, publicly traded company. So they have to kind of re, re, uh, report things back to their uh, shareholders publicly. And they said, "You know, this thing is dominating. We're doing so well. No one wants to call up a pizzeria on a Friday night and put on hold for five minutes and place the order mm-hmm. and read the credit card on the phone. And you know, I, I think people forget how painful it is ordering over the phone, but it, it was a pain. There's a ton of friction in it. And so Domino's came out with the app said, it's really easy. You can track your order. You don't have to talk to anybody. And, and it was a huge success overnight, but they also said, we think we're going to put independent pizzerias out of business because this, like, they didn't go as far as saying their pizza may be better than ours, but they kind of implied it. They, they basically said the pizza doesn't matter anymore. It's all about the convenience, convenience mm. wins. And, and they're, they're very much right on that standpoint. Sure. And so it's somebody that, that fears a world that is just Taco Bell and Domino's and, and nothing else. Uh, The idea came, well, how do we build a platform that allows any independent restaurant, regardless of their budget, their know-how, how how, how technical they are, to bring their brand online and maintain that direct connection that they have with their diner base, of which many have grown over, you know, years and years and years. And they have people that want to order takeout from them and, and who do order takeout from them. But it was so inconvenient placing that order over the phone. So the only option when you go back about a decade for independent restaurants was to join something like a Grubhub, or back then it was E24, New York, it was Seamless. They're all now mm-hmm, like Grubhub mm-hmm. these days. And, and if you talk to independent restaurant owners, they said, like, they're taking our customers. They don't share any of the information with us. So we're losing mm-hmm. that direct connection with our, our, our own diners. But not only that, they're charging 20 to 30% commissions on every single order. And if you know kind of the margins within the restaurant industry, they're taking all the profits and leaving us with nothing else. So wild. And yeah. And we were hearing this a decade ago. It, it's only got worse since then. Mm-hmm. And, and in New York, you know, New Yorkers are very outspoken uh, most of the time. <laughs> and, and so they were, I would talk to some of the restaurant owners are like, yeah, it's like the new mafia. They'd come in, they're like, okay, now we're gonna charge you 15% of that yeah, order yeah, and yeah. later when they have like a few more customers using, they're like, you know, now it's 17%. And year after year after year, that commission just kept going up and up and up. And so it wasn't a good option. And so the original idea for Chanao, which is still the core of what we do a decade later, is to allow any independent restaurant to get online, have their own ordering system, whether it's order on their website for the right restaurants, building their own branded apps. if, If they need their own branded apps, giving them a customer database, helping them with automated marketing, basically everything that Starbucks, Domino's and others have built, put it in a box and offer it for a hundred bucks or a couple hundred bucks a month to independent restaurants. And, and we now have about 22,000 restaurants on our platform that use our system. Um, and, and we've launched different product lines and a whole bunch of different features and restaurants. Now it's kind of, we offer it all the cart so restaurants can pick and choose of which, you know, what they need of what we offer. Um, but it's, it's, uh, we've been very lucky. We've, we've grown nicely. And I think we tapped into something that was needed and, and continues to be needed. Going back to those
1: early days. Um, how did you convince those original customers or, or or partners, if you will, of independent restaurants to work with you, given that the only thing in the marketplace was these very predatory types of businesses?
3: Yeah. So even back then, and it's hard to imagine. One, when we launched fax machines were still actively being used at restaurants, which is kind of mm-hmm. crazy to think. And mm-hmm. you know, restaurants historically as an industry are, are usually kind of late adopters to a lot of things and, yeah. and stick you know, once they have something that kind of works somewhat well, they stick with it and, and fax machines were, were a thing. We still today have restaurants that receive their order via fax, which is crazy that, that like we like at some point we're just like, we got to kill this thing off, but we have a few, I think it's a couple hundred restaurants on our system that are like, yeah, can you fax the order into us? Which is just shocking in this day and age. Wait um, a
1: second. But who are the other people on the other side doing the faxing?
3: So our system automates it. So you order oh, okay. online, okay, okay, yeah, okay, you order online, <laughs> you pay online, like from, from the, from the diner side of it, it's just as convenient. You order on the okay. website or hey. anything else. And then we take that, we process it. And then to actually get that order to the restaurant, most of the times, these days, there's multiple options for restaurants. We can integrate into the point-of-sale system, yeah, depending yeah, on the yeah. point-of-sale system they use. We provide tablets if they want a tablet. We can email them the order, or we can fax them. And the fact that we still have fax as an option just shocks me. But, but anyway, um, back, back to your question about the, what, the, the conversations in the early days. A lot of it back then was convincing them that they needed online ordering, and this was a thing, and this was going to grow. Ooh, the, the big chains... Latched onto it and they they adopted it very quickly and they saw a lot of success from it. The independents back then, some some of them got it right. Like a lot of different opinions in the industry, some people were very quick to adopt it. Said absolutely, yeah, we need this and and signed up and started reaching out to us to sign up. It wasn't even us convincing them; it was them convincing themselves and they're reaching out to us, which was always you know makes the sales cycle easier for our sales team. Um, fast forward kind of five or six years at that point, the industry had been changed quite a bit and online ordering is clearly a much bigger thing and, and this kind of known entity. And so then the conversation with the restaurant owners had shifted a little bit to not, do you need online ordering? They were convinced they needed online ordering, but you need to, you need to own your own system. You need to own your customer mm-hmm. base and you need to mm-hmm. own a hundred percent of your revenue. So stop using Grubhub or somebody else, or at least don't stop using it, but at least layer your own system in Yeah, and, try as best you can and here's some kind of tools and options and and um, a playbook to move a, as many of your diners to order directly from you as possible and and a lot of restaurants have followed through with that and and you know we we've played a part in that part of it is restaurants offering much better menu prices basically they're real menu prices when you order direct from them yeah. so our menu prices tend to be what you would get in store you often go on you know, DoorDash, Uber, Grubhub, any of them. And, and, you know, I hear this all the time. It's like, how is that, how is that sandwich that's normally like 12 bucks, 22 bucks oh, yeah. on streets?
1: Mediocre $25 uh,
3: salad. Yeah, exactly. And, and so it, it's, it, that is, there's a few factors there, but that's restaurants having to recoup those crazy commissions that they have to pay. Um, and so they have to inflate their menu prices to just offset that 30% commission that they're paying out to, to Grubhub or any of the other delivery apps out there.
1: You know, the pandemic really upended the world for independent restaurants because while some of the restaurants you're talking about offer takeout, that's part of their business, some of the most well-known independent restaurants never did takeout before. It was if you wanted to experience them, you had to come in and eat, but many of them had to pivot during this time. How did you play a role in supporting those restaurants in the pandemic, especially ones who had never really done takeout before? And then what have you seen stick now that we've come out of it and people have returned to dining into these types of places?
3: Yeah. So so when the pendant when COVID hit in kind of spring of 2020, so March, call March of 2020, um, at that point, we were kind of onboarding hundreds of restaurants a month and it went immediately to thousands of restaurants a month. And so we we well, hired a lot of people that were laid off from the industry, right? the industry there was a massive amount of layoffs in a very short period of time because restaurants were kind of shutting down shutting their dining rooms that they had to and so a lot of these restaurant you know uh, employees they knew us they knew our system they knew how it worked and they needed needed a job quickly and so we hired i think we hired like 150 uh people that had been laid off from the industry maybe up to to 200 in in spring of 2020 and and we trained them very quickly to help onboard other restaurants so that they could take orders online. Cause every restaurant had to now all of a sudden take orders online and their entire business was taken up for a period. And so we, there were people on our team that were onboarding restaurants at three in the morning. Like it was, it was around the clock work for about two to three months there. And, and to your point, we brought on restaurants that had never done takeout that were kind of more fine dining. Um, one that I, I ended up ordering a lot at was I, at the time I lived in Venice and so Felix in Venice was, you know, anyone that knows Felix was, you know, it's still an awesome restaurant. You should it. be so lucky to get that type of food at home. You should be so it, lucky. It, it car- I, I know they didn't want, they never wanted to do it. They, they, it's not how they want their food to be uh, consumed, but it traveled so well. We would order, I, I ate Felix on my couch probably three times a week. Uh, and, and, you know, my, my. But that focaccia was still warm. It was so good. The pizza, they did batch Ooh. cocktails, they did batch de- Negronis. I, you know, you'd get kind of like these, I think it was like 30 bucks for kind of three Negronis and a kind of a big flask. Oh. I think those uh, batch,
1: awesome. The batch yeah. cocktails from everyone, like getting a perfectly made martini from a place like Friedman's <laughs> or something like that. I was like, I know people are struggling right now, but I'm going to take a little bit of joy in, in this in this perfect drink that I don't want to
3: make for my home bar. Yeah. I mean, I, I, remember the orders that we got from Felix, the meatballs, the, the you know, you get like a, one other pizza is a meatball, maybe a pasta. Actually, I don't, the, the pasta, I think they were doing pasta kits. Um, and we did mm-hmm. that a couple of times as well, but, but anyway, put, put on plenty of weight in a short period of time because of, because of Felix. <laughs> um, and, and I thought the food traveled so well as did many other people. Cause they, yeah. they did a, a decent amount of, a, a lot of, lot, a lot of orders. Um, I think people were very happy that they could eat Felix at their their house over that Mm -hmm. time period. Um, But Felix no longer offers takeout, which I was kind of disappointed in, 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 not for business reasons and channel reasons, for customer reasons. reasons. Yeah, Yeah, and I think a lot of other people feel that way. I was hoping that they'd take over the restaurant next door and just run it as kind of like a a takeaway, kind of like uh, Jelena does their takeaway uh, out of of the space next door. but what we have seen is is some of those kind of Felix stories that like they had to to bring in the revenue to just stay alive. And then when the dining room reopens, they they turned it off.
4: That
3: That's a little bit more rare. What we have seen is restaurants really see the revenue that comes from it and create a very specific limited menu just for takeout uh, that works well, that travels well, that they can kind of do where, where it doesn't screw up there at the kitchen for the dining room. Um, and we see a fair amount of that. As well, And I think that's kind of going to be settled into the new normal. Yeah. I mean, I think this
1: hybrid model has definitely worked and I've seen some restaurants who have completely moved away um, from relying on Grubhub or DoorDash or any of these ones and have their own Chow Now platforms. I think of Home State, I think of Ronin. Um, but obviously, you know, as that deflated a little bit of people who just saying we're going back to this type of in-dining um, only and we're not going to need the channel services. How have you had to pivot as a business? How you know, was there any tough pills? You had to swallow, especially as you know it's not your fault. It's just things inflated and then deflated.
3: Yeah. Yeah, so you know, as, as I kind of view the world and and you know, we're now entering the second decade of our life at Chano. and I think about kind of what does that have and, and kind of think about it as like channel 2.0 in, in a sense. Our core product, the the, the one that we originally launched with that we've been building out and adding features and making better and better over time, it is still awesome and still used by many, many thousands of restaurants. And every single day we have more thousands, not thousands, but we have restaurants signing up every single day to to use that that product and that, that suite of software that we provide them. And they can pick and choose how they want to use it and brand it for themselves and use all the customer data that comes off of it, however they choose. As I look into the industry, though since we launched there basically been two two different ways of doing online ordering in in the restaurant industry there is direct ordering which is what we i wouldn't go as far as saying we pioneered it but i think we we're among the pioneers that were working on direct ordering we were are we very early on that and we're very very much convinced that was best for restaurants and still believe it's the best option for restaurants because they own the customer they maintain the relationship with the diner the, the data and then also they don't pay any commission so they keep 100% of the revenue you know subtracting for credit card fees that you, know, you can't avoid and so it is a much better option for restaurants which is why you see someone like ronin and so many other restaurants say, order direct from us it's way better for us and it's better for you um but if you if you look at from the consumer side i said there's two options ordering direct is that one option the other option and business model is is the doordash uber eats grubhub business model which is kind of one app it's a marketplace, and on the consumer side, it's very convenient. It's convenient having one app with a lot of restaurants in it. It's convenient having one account mm-hmm. that works mm-hmm. across all these restaurants, one credit card, etc. So there's a lot of convenience for it. When you order direct at a restaurant, you have to dig around for their website. You have to kind of navigate to it. It's a few clicks away. Um, if you want to have mobile apps on your phone, you have to have a few. It's probably fine having one or two mobile apps on your phone for, for restaurants. Um, you probably don't want ten of them on your phone. <laughs> Uh, right, and so I, I just have Home State. It's my number yeah. one. It's my number one.
1: It, sure. I go to it every week. It's but yes, I can understand not wanting to have fifteen different restaurant apps. Totally,
3: and and someone like Home State or like Sugarfish is another client of ours. When you have yeah. a brand like that in multiple locations, it makes sense. Sure, but from a consumer standpoint. Again, you, you have one on your phone. What we see on average is customers having maybe two or three restaurant apps. You don't yeah, yeah, yeah. tend to have a, a massive portfolio of restaurant apps on your phone.
1: And also, I don't want to have to guess as a consumer, like, are they on Chow now? Do they have their own app? Can someone just aggregate it for me going back to yeah. what you said about
3: where's the, the website? convenience, the less friction yeah. part of it is just like, let me pull up this one catch-all. Totally, totally. And so so what we are now working on is cherry-picking what we think are the best of those two concepts. and bring it to one app, which is the channel app. So all the benefits of direct ordering again, no commissions, the restaurant keeps hundred percent of the revenue. They keep the customer info, the relationship, the data, but the convenience of one app, one place to go, one one customer account. And so we think that's the best of both worlds there. And that's what we're working on right now actively. So the channel app um, is something that we, over this year, we invested quite a bit into. We think that, I think personally, the app's got quite good. We've made reordering super simple. So you can find your favorite restaurants, reorder the same dish, the same order from the same restaurants. You can discover other restaurants on our platform. You know that the restaurant, when you order on channel, hundred percent of the revenue is going. So you don't have to dig around from you know, different websites, um, different apps. And so we believe this is kind of the future of what the industry needs. And so we now are allowing any independent restaurant to join the join our marketplace. You don't have to use the full suite of software. We think the industry needs an alternative. We don't think the current path of delivery apps is sustainable. If you talk to restaurant owners, many of them are very vocal. Um, You know, Caitlin is obviously over at Ronin is very vocal, but she's one of many that are very vocal. And so we want to build a competitor out there. Um, I I think Resi has done a very good job changing the industry. When they launched, um, OpenTable was a monopoly. There was no one that was close to OpenTable, and restaurants hated the fact that they gave up money on every single cover to open table Resi launched and said, it it like we're not going to charge you per cover you just like use the platform and you know if you get you know a thousand bookings for, from us per month like awesome you don't have to pay us thousands of dollars just for that and now if you look open table has changed their business model they don't charge like they used to and then and, and i think resi it gets should get a lot of credit and and you know, probably deserves more credit than they even get for changing the reservation game and the way that restaurants pay and, and how much the industry is now saving. Um, you know, the, the one that suffered was open table, they make less revenue than they did eight years ago. We want to do the same thing on the online ordering space and really shake things up where, you know, hopefully restaurants don't have to pay these crazy commissions and they get all the data and everything else. And and, you know, from a selfish Chanel standpoint. You know, it'd be better if no one copied us and we were unique. <laughs> to this, to unique business model. But I also don't think that Uber and others can change their business model at this point. I think they're kind of stuck given how much money they make on every single order. They'd, they'd really put themselves in a tough binds. And so anyway, we, we are actively working on the channel app. We, we think it should be an alternative to Grubhub, Uber Eats and others out there and something that restaurants really want to be a part of and don't feel like they need to be a part of. I think, you know, unfortunately they feel like they need the list on, on Uber Eats. We hate well, that. We, we, we want them yeah. to be, want to be a part of it, not feel like they need to be a part of it.
1: No, I know. And that, I think it just comes with time and building community, um, which I think you guys are doing a really good job of. And um, I'm excited to see where the app goes. I will definitely be continuing to use it and things like that. Um, I want to ask one more question uh, before, before I let you go, because now that you're a dad, now that you're traveling, now that the world is reopening, um, you know you had your own mushroom moment as a child. What food moment are you hoping to share um, with your family that obviously they don't need to follow in, in the same footsteps, but maybe puts them on their same culinary journey that you started when you were a kid?
3: Yeah, I, I think it's just exposure to, to different types of food. Uh our son is 3. We take him out with us almost wherever we eat these days. Some exceptions, there's a couple of date nights here and there, but Of but course, he, he eats a lot with us. Yeah. Um and and we try to offer him everything that we're eating. Mm. Um I've now been to in uh, Crudo Nudo on Main Street uh, a couple mm. times and, and he's been with us every single time. The first time we went we'd ordered two of their uni taco little mm-hmm. dishes, which are delicious. Um, one for me and one for my girlfriends. He ended up eating my entire thing. I didn't even, I barely got a bite of it. Um, Classic and so three, I didn't think he was going to, I just offered him a bite. I thought he thought it was going to be disgusting and, and he wanted to finish it. That said, we just went this past weekend, intentionally ordered three, one for him, given kind of what happened last time where I didn't get one and he didn't want to touch it. He was just like not in the mood for it. So, you know, this, you know, kids, toddlers are fickle and you don't really know what you're going to get any day of the week. So, but, you know, we, we offer him everything we can anytime, anytime we try something.
1: Awesome. I love it. Well, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time with us. Uh, if people want to follow along with, uh, the developments of the company or just put the app on their phone, where can they go for the company and then where can they go to follow you for your own adventures?
3: Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, a plug for the Chano app. We think it's getting very good. We've been investing in it. We have a bunch of new features rolling out into the Chano app so you can get it in the, the app store or if you have an Android in the, the Play Store. Um, that's the number one thing. Uh, my handle on Instagram, which I'm starting to post a, just a tad bit more after taking a couple of years off uh, and which is why I have to actually look up my handle to verify it because I just haven't talked about it for a while. Um, it's good. The channel. I follow. Yeah. I follow. Okay. I, enjoy, yeah. I enjoy your trips. I, I, I had two personal goals this year that I set for myself. One was posting more of uh, just food and restaurants and channel on Instagram. Uh, so, so I'm working on that. So um, not the easiest handle, but CW3BB. Um, so CW3BB. And then the channel account is much better than than mine and much more active. And we have some really good people <laughs> working on that. And that's just at channel. Like yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, you, yeah. You're you're at the luxury of hiring someone who's saying, "Who like, knows what
3: the hell they're doing?" Yeah, who knows She's what the
1: hell they're doing. doing? Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Um, and uh, not to um, take a wild swing, but probably younger than the two of us, I would say as
3: well. Um, yeah, I would. I would bet that this is the case. I, yeah. I don't know her age, but I would put money on it. She's younger than me.
1: So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, at all the companies I've worked at, whenever I've I've hung out with the social media manager, I'm like, I hope you don't think I'm too old and that I'm still cool. <laughs> um, well, Chris, thank you so much. Appreciate it. And thank you to your team for helping set this up. Uh, we have a song from the archives and then a live performance here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network.
5: Hello, everybody, and welcome to a brand new series on Heritage Radio Network called The Culinary Call Sheet, where we give a peek into the back kitchen of culinary media. I'm your host, April Jones.
1: And I'm your co-host, Dara Bresnitz. Part of why we started this show was to offer an unofficial mentorship for anyone who is interested in learning about all aspects of food and video, whether that's TV, social media, online or just something you want to do for fun.
5: Absolutely. What was once niche or a little silly, as I'm sure you remember, Darren, when we started out. Yes, ma'am. Has now become such a massive playing field for so many creatives using food as the medium.
1: It's something that has driven us professionally and personally for so many years. What excites me the most about this show is that we're gonna sit down with some of the industry leaders to hear how they made it and what drew them into this industry.
5: With 20 years in the culinary production game ourselves, we're hoping we can give through these conversations an insider's view into personal stories from the field, as well as an in-depth behind the scenes look into some of the most popular food programming in today's evolving culinary media landscape.
1: We'll be covering everything from how to style your food, to how to license IP, to developing your own ideas, and some tips from the masters of how to host your own show.
5: Yeah, it's a little bit of conversation, how to, and how do you do the things that you do in culinary media, which I'm so excited about. I love so many of the guests that are coming on this season. We have talent from Food Network, from Vice Media, Eater, Refinery29.
1: We've met some of the best people in the world, both in front of and behind the camera. And we're bringing them all together to share their stories, their delicious adventure, and their unique journey into this crazy world.
5: So to be the first to hear our episodes when they launch this fall, go to wherever podcasts are streaming and hit subscribe, and make sure to give us a follow at the Culinary Call Sheet on Instagram.
1: Welcome back to Snaggy Tunes. Uh, We're here with Loose Buttons live in studio. Hello, boys.
6: How's it going? What's going on?
1: Uh, You want to go around the room and introduce yourselves? Yes. Uh, I'm Eric. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you.
6: I am
4: Emmanuel Silverstein. <laughs> I'm Zach. And I'm Adam.
1: Yeah, we can, can raise him back. To, yeah, in the back. I'm, I always feel like the drummers get like the short end of the stick. They're just like, yeah, just shove him in the back corner. What? Don't say anything. <laughs> um, well, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Uh, on our first show back in 2016, on this like oddly rainy, but season unseasonably warm day. Um, you guys have just played Nitting Factory this week, right? Yeah, we played it yesterday. How was the show? It was amazing find
6: amazing. The fans were out of control. It was a beautifully packed room. For us, you know, we really
1: feed off the crowd's energy. Yeah, fans were great. What? Well, uh, how far into the show did you guys like pick up on the energy? Like, okay, this is like
4: not your average show.
1: <laughs> what song do you think?
4: For I would say. I would say before the show. Yeah, maybe. Like we could tell there was there was a couple other bands playing with us, and and like everyone was there was like there was a little baby who was just kind of like. On someone's shoulders, like, jumping up in the crowd. And from then on, we just knew it was. It was she was adorable, it.
6: by the way. Yeah. <laughs> she was four years old and, like. Were they responsible parents and, like, had the oversized. Uh, n- no, that's the crazy no. thing. She was four years old, not even earplugs. I can't. Not I can't even
7: earplugs, ab- bottle not jack.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, like, can't abide by it. Like, yeah. you know, like, that to me just seems like, you know, like, bring your kid out, but... I think it's adorable when it when a baby I, also wears the I, headphones, too. I think it's, like, a strong look. Like, I yeah. think, like, <laughs> we <strong>. as adults <laughs> would not be able to pull it off. Like, you could not go, and they're like, hey, how's it going? Like, take off your <laughs> headphones, please. You look- exactly, exactly. But kid, up to a certain age, um, I have seen um, fathers who are still in bands like fav, like, strap their kids to their chest when they were babies, and, like, they had the <laughs> yeah, yeah. headphones on. I, I mean... I wish her parents put those headphones on. Yeah, or know? maybe they forgot them, or I don't know. I mean, the hearing's going to go one way or the other. <laughs> exactly. You just want to, like, hold it off uh, as long as possible. Exactly, exactly. Um, so how did you guys all, all meet? And you grew up together, right?
6: Yeah, so I have known Zach now for, like, 11 years, 12 years. We've been playing music for pretty much that long. So. Yeah, these
1: guys are 50 for people who... Uh- <laughs> <laughs> uh,
6: yeah, so we, we met in sixth grade, and, like, literally, like, I think the second day of school... Zach and I just started playing music together and we've been doing it ever since and then uh, You know, we played music in high school and then when we went off to separate colleges We still wanted to keep it going Mm -hmm. Um, and I went to the University of Miami and uh, my freshman year roommate is this guy right here Manny and uh, We then (laughs) we brought him on board and then we stole the best drummer on campus to round us out and now we've got Swagman jones aka adam uh
1: sitting in the <laughs> back corner how has um it's interesting it's it's like you know it's like young love in a sense like you you know you grow together so did you guys push each other um like to develop differently or how did you guys develop um your writing your writing um talent like your skills like we're like hey man you got to practice a little bit more like i'm getting <laughs> a little bit better than you like how did that kind of evolve over the years definitely uh i mean
6: Zach is probably, pushes me um, subtly and subconsciously, probably the (laughs) most of any member in this band. And uh, definitely, like, it's this kind of, this back and forth where we kind of, I watch him grow, because, you know, he went to different colleges me, so whenever we'd meet back, you know, during our breaks, I'd see how much he's grown as a musician, and that's my motivation to then catch up to him, and I can't speak for him, but that's kind of my motivation there a little bit well
4: yeah i mean i i went to a very different school i went to wesleyan i don't know if anyone yeah you know wesleyan. i've been there yeah yeah it's a, kind of a crazy place so huge music scene mm-hmm. a lot of weird music so yeah. so but but we kind of took that you know as an advantage i'd say and like, exactly kind of expanded our horizons in while we were at school so exactly uh
1: cool let's hear a song Perfect. why don't you play us a, a tune we love tunes okay yeah. great what are you gonna play first What about Thrill? Let's do it. Okay, cool. (laughs) Thank you. I came (laughs) up with that one. Uh, Loose Buttons, live on Snacky Tunes.
2: This land you assumes now. Would I think I get lost in thrills sometimes? Oh, I get lost in my thoughts sometimes. Yes. No, I will That's what I thought Twisted little chatter on the bathroom floor I can't stop I get lost in thrills sometimes Oh, I get lost in my thoughts sometimes No, I won't stop letting hook Sat in the need of night table for one. For a second, the temptation fell more than just fun. I get lost in the thrill sometimes. Oh, I get lost in the thrill sometimes.
1: Since you guys have been playing together for... Since sixth grade, are there any songs that have stayed? Uh, or, like, what's the oldest song you guys play? Or if you had to retire uh, some of the older tunes? Or all of them? We retire a lot of songs. Yeah.
7: <laughs> Much to the chagrin of a lot of a our bands. A lot of gone. <laughs> yeah. Thankfully, we're in a prolific writing
4: period now. So oh, so. yeah. So our newer shows, we're playing more of our, our new songs. Oh, okay, yeah. the new yeah, the the music. music.
1: The music. Is there, like, anyone in particular that's still, like, a point of, like, please, like... I want to keep playing it, but everyone else is kind of like, mmm, past its, past its prime.
7: Hmm. Well, we have, like, the the opposite scenario. We have a song that the people want us to play a lot that we don't really want to
4: play a lot as much. <laughs> no, we have another one, though, that I want to Oh. Retro- oh, Retrobox! We, but we, no one else wants. We to play have a,
7: a Zach versus the rest of us. One of those. You guys well. can check out
4: Retrobox. It's on YouTube. It's, <laughs> it's really, good. It's it's really good. good. Might not be on <laughs> YouTube. <at all. laughs> an
1: unfinished song that. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Shot down. So, what is the? I mean, and having like such like a long history, like what is the writing process, or how do you guys put it together?
6: We pretty much, you know, we'll have the initial idea either come from you know Zach or myself, and we'll bring that in. And then it's not really a loose button song until the rest of the members put their little mark on it. You know, it's not a loose button song until Manny comes up with a beautiful bass line or swag man with a with a <laughs> beat that keeps it going. So that's pretty much how the songwriting works and then we build these pieces on top of each other and um you know, they go through many different versions until it's the perfect one.
4: But yeah, it usually starts with kind of either I would say like a lot of riffs these days, like yeah. riffs over even melodies. So mm-hmm. we'll write like most of the music before we even throw a melody on top, mm-hmm. or vice versa. The melody, and then everything else will grow from Exactly,
1: exactly. And you guys have a, a new song coming out this week, too, right? Yeah, we have Crowded Room." Uh, it's coming out on, U- on Yahoo Music, right? Yahoo, Yahoo Music. Um, and what's the
6: story behind that song? That song is kind of, uh, lyrically, it's about this daydream, in a sense, where you, know, you see a beautiful lady in the crowd and uh you kind of just automatically have these visions of your future with her mm. and then um but these futures do not come true at the end of the day she's just another girl with another guy <laughs> Got so it. can we hear it we'd love to play it for you thank too. you that would be great <laughs>
2: Could this make sense?
1: Very nice. Thank you. Thank you. So, on top of uh, that, coming up, you guys have an EP coming out in the spring.
6: That's the plan. Um, <laughs> how much of a plan is that? Yeah, we're t- we try to stick by it, but yeah. you know we're usually a few months off of what our actual target date is. But we're yeah, we're in the studio right now. We just built our own studio in Long Island City. Oh, amazing! Yeah, so we're um, so we're in there working. What, what went
1: into that process?
6: We pretty much uh, it took a storage room and. Uh, like, is it in a storage building? It's literally in a storage facility. Is that
4: fine? Uh, it sounds it, not yeah. fine.
7: <laughs> it's <laughs> technically a, legal. Okay. It's a space where a lot of bands are. It's, oh, okay. They, like, okay. It's actually
4: a thing. A lot of bands do that. Yeah. I don't know. It's kind of one of the few places where you can be loud. Exactly. Right. And I guess, like, you can... It's just space. Exactly. And power. Right. Exactly. So
6: we went in there, and uh, we're now in the process of making the aesthetics look nice. and uh, you got
1: to dress up like a exactly. storage
6: space. Exactly. We just Christmas put Christmas lights. yeah, Christmas
1: <laughs> lights all over the place. Classic Christmas light. Uh, and what was the decision to build your own versus like going into um, you know, working with the producer going into another
6: studio? Well and we're still we're still in that process right now, but we, we thought it was smart for us to do the writing ourselves, really lock ourselves in a room and the four of us hash it out. Yeah. And then bring in a fifth voice mm. to to then round it out a little bit more. And we're in the process now of talking to a bunch of different producers. We'll see. You know, we've been talking to Rick Rubin, and uh...
7: <laughs> is it just is a one room? Or were you, did you were you able to subdivide? the No, space? it's one room. Oh, interesting. It's really more of a rehearsal slash writing space than a recording yeah.
4: space. Okay, yeah. so
7: you're not going to record the record in there, or are you... probably not. Don't okay. think so.
4: Yeah,
1: it's really interesting. I mean, it's amazing, like just how you can get so much further along these days. Do any of you have like um, production background or like the tech?
6: Actually, Manny is the one that mixes all of our music um, thus far. At thus thus least. far, yeah. So all the recordings we've had,
1: it's been it's been Manny. Uh, do you feel? Do you uh, mix with an iron ear, um, or do you? Are you open to uh, suggestions?
7: I'm definitely open to su- uh, <laughs> suggestions. Uh, I think currently one of our issues is we, you know, when you totally self produce something and mm-hmm. you have unlimited power and unlimited time to edit it and work on it, mm-hmm. sometimes that's like too much power, yeah. and you can get sort of caught in a loop of, well, let's go back and make it better. Let's go back and make it better. This is our art. It must be as art and good as possible.
1: <laughs> Sometimes that constraint of, like, we only have a week to make this record or, like, we have no money or things like that. Like, at some point, it's never going to be yeah, 100%. You capture, you capture
7: a time. Yeah. And, and that's exactly. something that we yeah.
6: haven't been doing. And, and that's and
7: something we're definitely we're looking to do with this new EP. We want to most likely have someone that isn't me produce <laughs> it and do it in a much more, like, focused short period of time and yeah have it not be something that we can spend months and months going back to and then be like actually like I really hate the bridge let's just throw (laughs) it out and write a new bridge which is something that we've done
1: before maybe you guys can buy like a giant um, like stop clock or just like a countdown clock and install it in the space and be like we have to just actually a genius idea genius (laughs) yeah do
6: you want to be our producer (laughs) because
1: I'll just throw out the ideas in there but it it is interesting to think about creative projects where like at some point it's like this long tail of like never like Oh, I guess I could play like you know a quarter note instead of a full note. And maybe exactly. just like, can we just open this back up or exactly. everything? And sometimes it's just good to have someone be like, "You're done."
7: Yeah, yeah. And I think also just as a band, we've evolved a little bit. Our first EP two years ago, I think we were trying to be like really kind of artsy fartsy with the whole thing. <laughs> I mean, Wesleyan. And-, <laughs> and um, right now, even songwriting wise as a band, we feel like we're trying to be a little bit more like raw, live indie mm-hmm. rock fun, where it almost you know, you don't need the record to have like, you know, beautiful string arrangements or anything like that. It should just be like energetic and fun and if you listen back and you're like, Oh, that guitar's a little too loud, it's like, who cares?
4: It's fine. It's not a big deal. It's rock and roll baby, you know? Yeah. Um, well, I want to make sure. Oh, were you going to say something? I was going to say that rock and roll is actually our favorite sport. Yes, thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> and I needed to get that in because yeah. it's, it's so true. It's
6: your favorite sport? It's our yeah. favorite sport, yeah. We play it really hard, and uh, we've gotten good at it. Um, we do drills. Yeah, we do rock and roll drills. What are your rock and roll drills? <laughs> Pretty much uh, play to a click at rehearsal.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but, yeah, we're getting good at it. It's amazing. Um, well, I want to make sure we have time to get in. One more song Um Where can people Find the first two piece Shows Um Get all the uh, Information
6: Definitely like us on uh, On Facebook Uh Search the band Loose Buttons Soundcloud Soundcloud Definitely And uh If you pretty much Go to those two areas
1: You will have all the Information that you need Awesome Um Well I want to thank Peter For joining us Uh Please write in LA suggestions To win two free tickets To the Sold out festival Shout out to my family Shout out to my girlfriend Why not? That's what it's all about. Happy 2016, guys. You too. It's going to be a good year. Happy New Um, Year. What are you going to take us out with? Uh, An oldie, but a goodie. uh, Two This one's still being played. This one's still being played. Yeah, okay, very much.
6: Thanks for coming by. Thank you so much.
2: Spend some time, a little bit of money Capture the ride You'll hold the lens And let's pretend money's never coming I'm in some train Living in your company Oh, 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 oh. And nothing to go. Tools that are haunting from loving you to go. Tools that are haunting from loving you go.